Matthew 26, verse 57. It says, And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the, at the last came two false witnesses, and they said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? And they answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? And we'll pause and pray before we continue. Again, Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, and as we're approaching in our season, the birth of Christ, but in the scriptures, the death of Christ. And Lord, I just ask that you would just help us to see that this was the purpose of his coming, um, that the whole story is wrapped up in these two events. And so, Lord, just as we look at it this morning, I just ask that you would guide me and my thoughts, the words that come from my mouth, and that you would use this time for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been going through the events of the Last Supper and, and the various things that have been going on and looking at different aspects of it. And we get now to this point where Jesus has been arrested and he's taken away to the high priest. And there's this crowd assembled. And in verse 59, it says, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. What an interesting statement. They sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. They didn't look for real witnesses and real accusations because there were none. <laughs> They're searching for false witnesses. I want to look at that just a little bit. And my assumption is that if you're here this morning, chances are you know the things that I'm going to say. But you know, 
some of the things that I'm going to say this morning are the most questioned things that I see in the world from lost people challenging Christians. And so if, if this isn't new information, perhaps it may help you to have ammunition to answer some of those questions if, if you're faced with those questions at some point. So don't think that, hey, I don't need to hear this. I, I know this stuff. I believe this already. That's, that's not the point. The point is that you're, you're to be prepared to answer, to give an answer, the hope that lieth in you. And so we need to be ready to answer some of these questions that come against us. So I, I go through this stuff for that purpose. So it's just refreshed in our minds and that we're, we're solid in some of these concepts that we, that we look at in Scripture. And so this idea that Jesus is so pure, so perfect... what it says after this. It says, so, verse 59, the, priests, the chief priests, the elders, and the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. So they're looking for false witnesses because they obviously couldn't find any true witnesses, but it says, verse 6, he says, but they found none. <laughs> yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. Jesus is so pure you can't even make a false accusation against him that can stand. <laughs> Does that... You can make accusations against me, and you know what? Somebody might believe one of those things. As somebody accuses you of doing something wrong, it's possible that the rest of us might actually believe it. Because we're fallible people, and we do things that are wrong. We, we're not perfect. But when they come to Christ with a, a false accusation, they have all these witnesses and they have people coming and saying stuff against him, and not a single one of their accusations were believable. <laughs> He's just too good, too perfect, too pure for any of the stuff, any of the accusations to stick against him. You know, this is important, though. It's <laughs> very important. You know, look at um, Hebrews chapter 4 just for a moment. Starting in verse 14. So, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, verse 14. So seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this verse points out that Jesus came as a man and he faced everything that we face, whether it's hunger or you know, lust and all the, 
the different things that we go through and anger and people were always against him, accusing him of doing things, always falsely, always ridiculing him, demeaning him, pointing out, well, who's this carpenter? We know his family. And, you know, all these just picking at him time and time again. And yet, with all the temptation that he faced, it says not once did he sin. He faced everything that we face. And we fail continually. We sin in our temptations. And yet, it says, yet without sin. But that's, verse 14 makes the point, we have a high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus is the Son of God. Let us hold fast to profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. It's like, he understands what we're going through. And when we're dealing with trouble in this life, we can go to God. And Christ experienced those kinds of troubles in his physical life. And so it's not like some person who's never had a problem in their life, they're rich, everything's been handed to them, everything's taken care of, and some person struggling through life with nothing but problems and you know, no money, no food, no necessities, no roof overhead. And it's like trying to present this issue to this rich person who's never had a problem in life. They just don't understand. They can't comprehend why this person doesn't just get up off their butt and go and get a job and, you know, right? Have you ever thought that about somebody? It's like, why don't they just go and do what I do and all your problems will be solved? It's not always an option for everybody, is it? But Christ isn't like that. He understands the details of the problems that we face. And so when we come to him, he doesn't just say, pull up your bootstraps and get on with it. He says, I've been there. But I got through that. I dealt with those kinds of temptations. I dealt with those kinds of problems. And I did it without sin. And you can too. And so we can come to him in that way, trusting him because he's experienced it. But he did it without sin, without failure, without fault. But there's, a, there's an additional importance to Christ being sinless. Because if Christ is guilty of even one sin, he can't take the penalty for our sin. And that's critical. Can you imagine, and I don't know how our legal system, I don't think I can step in for somebody else, but can you imagine in a, in a legal system where capital punishment exists, and me and Darren go and murder a couple of guys, and then we go on trial, and they're going to hang us. Can I say, can you spare Darren, let him live, I'll take his punishment for him. You can hang me in his stead. He's like, well, no. You have to be hung for your crimes. You can't take his place 
It would have to be somebody that's not guilty to be able to take his place and pay for him, right? Well, this is kind of Christ on the cross. Is If he's guilty of even one sin, he has to, he has to pay his, his own penalty, his own debt. So he couldn't possibly take on ours because he's got to pay his own. I'll back that up with some scripture here. Galatians chapter 3 to start with. Galatians 3 verse 10. It says, for as many, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, if you break a single law, the curse of that, the penalty for that, is required of you. The, of the whole thing. <laughs> Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And I'll add to that in James chapter 2. James 2.10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Right? So it doesn't matter how minute it is. One little thing that you break the law, as in God's law, as in now we could break this down as the Ten Commandments, well, that's probably enough for, well, it's guaranteed that's enough for every one of us. We've all lied. We've all stolen something. We've all committed adultery in some way in, in lust. We've all broken the Sabbath. We've all not given all or all to God. Loved him with all our heart, soul, mind. We've all put something before God as a graven image, as an idol. We've put things before God. We're guilty. Like, we can go through the whole list. You covet your neighbor's stuff. We're guilty. <laughs> Christ wasn't guilty of a single one of those. And then there's six, uh, how many is that? What's the number? 613 other laws, rules that are listed out throughout the, the Old Testament. Christ wasn't guilty of breaking a single one. But if he was, Scripture says that he was guilty of the whole thing. And that's, us, that's, that's the whole point of, we preach, I preach, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. His death on the cross as payment for my sin is the only way to God. Because... If I've broken one of these laws, I'm guilty of the whole thing. So if I'm trying to 
have more good than bad and hope that God lets me in because my good outweighed my bad. It's never going to happen because I'm guilty of the whole thing if I've committed one. One sin ruins the whole thing and I'm guilty before God and I, I'm guilty. I'm done. And I hope you know this verse, but if, if you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 3, agrees with the point that I made, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Chapter 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. So if I'm guilty of one, I'm guilty of all. And scripture confirms that we are all guilty. And therefore the wages of sin is death. There's a requirement that we have to pay for our sin. And like I said, if, if I'm guilty, if I, have, if I have my own debt to pay through death, well, I can't die a second time for one of you to take your place to let you off. And that's the issue with Christ, is that if he was guilty of one sin, he couldn't possibly take our place. But let's look at this a little bit more of our guilt. If we back up here to verse 19, it says, Now we know, this is chapter 3, verse 19, sorry. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The whole point of that Old Testament law, of the Ten Commandments in particular, because that's sufficient, right? Is just to show us our guilt. You understand that, though. This is very important that we understand that the purpose of the law is simply to show us that we are guilty. It's not there to show us a way to heaven or a way to avoid guilt. It's there to prove that we are guilty before God. It's not there as a way to access God. As in, if you keep these things, you're going to get there, because you're not. Verse 20, again, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. No flesh is going to be justified in the sight of God. None of us. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God, without the law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith, of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned. The righteousness of God is put on us by the faith of Jesus because he has the righteousness. 
says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He paid for it because he could pay for it. Look at a couple more passages just on that same thought, that same topic. First Peter chapter 3. First Peter 3. Fifteen to eighteen here. So first Peter three, fifteen says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit. Now, could get off topic here at those beginning verses. But it actually speaks to the exact thing that we're talking about having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. It's exactly what's happening to Christ as he's before the, the chief priest here, is they're bringing false accusations against him because they could bring no real accusations. And that should be our testimony as well, that the only accusation someone can make against us is a false one. It says, For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. We're supposed to accept suffering for obeying God and being accused of... Our, our world is backwards enough now that by doing good we get accused of evil, right? And we're to accept that kind of accusation that the good that we're doing be called evil. It says, For Christ also hath suffered, hath, hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Christ suffered and died, says the just for the unjust. We are unjust. We are all guilty before God because we've all broken that law. But Christ, having not broken that law, being perfect and sinless, took our place, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That's the whole point, is that he took that on him so that we could have access to God through him. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the word, sorry, the world, unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto him, unto them, sorry, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now that we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, ye be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Not incredible? He who knew no sin became sin for us. Like he took our sin on him and took that penalty for us. Exchanged his righteousness for our sin. We get his righteousness, he gets our sin. That is not a fair trade. But that is what Christ did on the cross for us. And that's important for us to understand that it's that exchange that makes salvation possible. And it's only by believing that that is what took place that we get that salvation. It's not just given to us. It's given to us freely. But the requirement is that we believe it. Stop thinking that I'm good enough or that my good somehow will outweigh my bad in the end or thinking that I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm a pretty good person, right? I, I am not a very good person. And the more I, I've been saying the last couple of weeks, the more I read the book, the more I see what not a good person I am and the more I realize the need to change that. But it just makes me that much more guilty before God and that much more in need of that perfect Savior. The Old Testament, and I'm, I'm looking at some of this Old Testament law, I'm looking at some of the sacrifices, and it's, it's, there's a lot there. <laughs> I don't understand it all. I'm trying to understand this, like John chapter 1, These guys that were in this system certainly understood it better than I do. John the Baptist is here and he's preaching and Jesus walks up. John 1 verse 29 says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which take Get away the sin of the world. John looks and he sees Jesus coming. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. There's a sacrifice that's required for sin. I was almost going to go into that, but it's a, it's a big topic. <laughs> but there's many different sacrifices and 
it's interesting as I started looking at some of this stuff, like there's, there's bulls and goats and turtle doves and the lamb. The lamb, where it really comes through is in when Israel is in captivity in Egypt and we under, most of us would know the story of Exodus and the plagues and that final plague of death. And he's given this instruction, take a lamb without spot, a perfect lamb, and kill it and take the blood, paint the doorposts and the, the lintel, the top of the cross, and that you'll be spared. The angel of death will pass over you. It's like, there's a perfect picture of this, the lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. Like, that took their place. The lamb dies, its blood is put on kind of a cross-type shape of the door frame. And death passes over. They exchanged that lamb for them, for their death. And that's the picture of Christ. And that's, that's what John the Baptist sees when he sees Jesus, is behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We can go through, I'm not going to look at the, the different verses, but read Hebrews. In its description of what the purpose of some of those sacrifices were and what Christ did to replace that. It says the, the blood of bulls and goats could never pay for our sin. It was just a picture of what was needed. Something perfect without spot or blend, like flawless. You have to get the best of the best of the flock and you're going to kill that and it's still not enough to actually pay for your sin. It's just a picture of what is required and it needs perfection. Christ is that perfection. He is the good enough sacrifice that his death, his blood, presented before God was enough to pay for the sin. And that's, it has to be that. It has to be perfection. Anything less, and it's, he's paying for his own, not for ours. It has to be a perfect, sinless son of God. I wanted to look at the second part of that in Matthew 26. Apparently, I don't know what direction Matthew is from John. There we go. It's Matthew 26. To consider the second half of this passage, We'll start in verse 62. It says, The high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. The question, are you... The Christ. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? 
tell us. Interesting that that's the question being asked, right? Is that if they're asking the question, well, somehow they must know that there is a claim to that position being made. (laughs) They have to understand that that is who he is or who he claims to be. And yet they're like, well, tell us. Tell us if you are. Well, how do you get the idea that he is in the first place if he hasn't told you? But you know, this is what I was kind of alluding to at the beginning, was that this is the question or the statement that many lost people will make, and they'll say that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus never claimed to be God. Really? Look at his answer here, even. He doesn't have to come out and say, I am God, to have claimed that. This is, it says, but Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, nevertheless I say unto you. So he starts off like, well, you said it. I'm not denying it. The lack of denial is a statement of itself. To just give it back to the person. So thou hast said, well, that's indicating that you're right in what you've said. And it says, nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Did he need to say, I am the Messiah, or I am Christ, or I am God, in so many words? No. He doesn't need to say it in so many words because the statement that you're going to see me sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven, like, it's a picture of a second coming, right? You're going to see. And it's, well, there's no question as to who that is in that depiction. It is the Christ, (laughs) He is the Son of God, as the accusation was put before him. He didn't have to say it in as many words. He certainly affirmed it, and everybody there understood it to mean exactly what I'm saying it meant, because, well, you can read the rest of the passages, then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard his blasphemy. What think ye? And they answered and said he's guilty of death. The blasphemy is that he claimed to be God. He claimed to be that person. And their answer is that he's guilty of death. That is the only thing that, if it was true that he wasn't and he was claiming to be, then he is guilty. And that's the, we also need to be clear on this, is that If he isn't the perfect, sinless son of God, then he is also not a good person. He's not somebody to be followed. Right? He is guilty of blasphemy and guilty of death. 
he needs to be put to death for what he is guilty of if what he's saying is not true. So if Jesus isn't actually the Christ, if he's not the Son of God, then all of his claims and all the things that he's said and done are false, and he's not a good person. He's the opposite of a good person. He would be a liar, an imposter, an antichrist, right? He has to be that in order for us to be right in following him. So don't ever accept that, oh, he was just a good teacher, he's a good person, but, but he's not that. He is that, he has to be that. Or he is not a good teacher, he's not a good person at all. He would be an imposter. And so, he, he must be who he says he is. We looked at the verses that talked about that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all guilty, right? Well, what about what about Jesus? If the law was able to save us, then certainly keeping the law would like if, if I could not if I could refrain from lying, I could refrain from stealing, I could refrain from all these things that we do every day that break those laws. If I could actually possibly do that, would I not be righteous before God? Well, Isaiah 64, verse 6, 64, 6, tells us that all our righteousness are as filthy rags. Even the good that we do is dirty before God because we do good out of a sinful heart, out of pride. And, and all of our motives for all the good that we do, as much as we may try, it's still dirty because our motivation is wrong, our thoughts are wrong. We're not, our heart is not right before God. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. So even... The best that we can do, we would still be guilty before God. But not Christ. Because he had the right motive. He had the, the right attitude. And the good that he did was good. <laughs> it was pure good. Let's look at... So did... Yeah. Get order here. Did Jesus claim to be God? Did he claim to be the Messiah? And there's a... Read the book of John. Many, many times he makes statements that people very clearly took as that claim. Um, one of them was, just in this discussion, he speaks to Abraham, he says, and they bring up Abraham, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Um, I believe that was, um, might be John 8. I'm not sure which, which passage it is here right now. But that's his statement, is before Abraham was, I am. You can't say that without it being taken as a claim of, of being God, literally, because only God, you know, like, 
Abraham lived an awful long time before Jesus. So he can't claim to have been alive in his human form at that time. But he's claiming pre-existence to Abraham. Not I was, but I am. (laughs) It's like God is so far outside of our realm of understanding. He's outside of time. So he can, in present tense, claim presence in the past. Hmm. (laughs) That is Christ. That is Jesus making that kind of statement that in the past, I'm currently existing there. He was. And so there's a a statement of that that is just, it was clearly understood. And the people wanted to kill him for that statement in itself. And that, that response of the people reveals that the understanding of the statement was exactly how we understand it to be, that he is making that claim. But I'll look at the, the actual conversation, um, John chapter 4. It's a conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman at the well. And if you, if you know the story, is like they come to this well and the disciples go to town to get food and whatever, and Jesus is sitting at the well, and this woman comes, and he asks her for a drink. And she recognizes him as a Jew, and she's a Samaritan, and she says, what are you, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink? It's like, this doesn't even make sense, because the Jews don't, not, don't talk to the Samaritans like this. And he's being kind to her, and he tells her that, well, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd have asked me for a drink. And he's, she's like, well, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. How are you going to get me water? And Anyway, the, the conversation goes on like that. So John chapter 4, and we get to verse 25. It says, the woman said unto him, I know that Messiah comes which is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. So she's kind of arguing over where, where we should be worshiping. And he's like, well, the Messiah is going to set all this straight for us. And Jesus says unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Very direct, absolute answer. I am that Christ. Jesus did directly claim to be that. So there's a question, and that's the, the statement that I've heard many times now, is that Jesus never really claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be the Christ or the Messiah. And he did. He very directly did in this instance. It was often in a veiled kind of way, indicating that in other conversations. But in this one, he very clearly told her, I am he. I am that Messiah. And so, yes, Jesus did make that claim. I want to look at Hebrews chapter 1, and I'll, I'll finish with Hebrews 1 here. What does the Bible say about who Jesus was? We can 
trust in that and who he was, that he's not, not an imposter, that he's not the liar, the deceiver that people make him out to be, that he's more than just a good person. He was more than just a good teacher. Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1, says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world's who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus, the Son, is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. He is the one by whom God made the worlds. And he says, upholding all things by the word of his power. And then it also says, he by himself purged our sins. By himself he purged our sins. Without any outside help. Jesus, the son, was all these things. Like, he is the image of God. the express image of his person. But if we go just a little bit further in this chapter, there's another statement here. If we go to verse 8, it says, But unto the Son, and the the conversation in the, the context here, he's just talking about comparing the angels with Jesus. And it's like, I haven't made the angels as, as important and as good, as perfect as what I made Jesus. And so this is a comparison, but he says, Under the sun he saith, in verse 8, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. God is speaking, and unto the sun, that's Christ, Jesus, he saith, Thy throne, O God. God the Father is calling Jesus God. What more do we need? If God calls Jesus God, I don't need any other theologian to give some long-winded explanation of how he is or isn't that. God himself declares Jesus to be God. I'll read the rest of the, this, the context here. Verse 9 says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, 
and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. That is who Jesus is. And in verse 10, he says it again. He says, and thou, Lord, capital L, in the beginning hast laid the foundation. It's like, well, you go to Genesis chapter 1. It says, in the beginning, God created. But here it says, speaking, God, God is speaking to the Son. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. He is the creator. Jesus himself is the one who created the world. And we look in John chapter 1 and see more of that. But that's who he is. He is that sinless son of God. He is perfection. And it's only in his perfection that he was able to take our sin on him. The just for the unjust. Right? He was perfect. And it was only in that perfection that he could do that for us and that we can put our faith in him for that. Let's pray.